0: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo
1: code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Downslope's History here. We've got the last in our little mini-series, our little strand of legends, stars in the firmament of the historical... Um, pantheon galaxy starscape um, sky at night anyway here is Mary Beard we've saved the best till last we've had Eric Foner go back and check that out we had Michael Wood both really wonderful conversations this conversation with Mary took place a couple of years ago this is a rerun episode Professor Mary Beard at Cambridge University is obviously a legend Uh, she is pretty much the most famous historian broadcaster in the UK, her fame has spread across the world. She's a classicist. She engages robustly on contemporary issues. Uh, she is a total legend. I went round to her house. We drank a lot of wine. Uh, she put me right, fairly politely, on uh, on lots of things. And I was just given a, a glorious glimpse into what it must be like to be taught uh, by her. Uh, she is a national treasure, and it's was, it was a great pleasure to have her on the podcast this Episode was hugely popular the first time it went out. Uh, I hope the rest of you who've joined this podcast journey subsequently uh, enjoy it. If you want to listen to all the back episodes of this podcast without advertisements on the front, then you can do so at History Hit TV. It's also like a history channel, it's also basically the Netflix for history. You've got all the audio on there, got all the video including the, the Christmas Truce, now the worst watched programme in the history of History Hit TV. I should make a history podcast about the history of that. Another time. And you can do so at a special introductory rate. It's the January sale at the moment, everyone. You can use the code January, uh, and then you get a month for free, and then your first three months for 80% off, which is a sweet deal. So go and check that out. Listen to Mary Beard, then go and check that out. It's going to get you through these long winter months. We're going to get We're going to get to the vaccine, everyone. And you were going to get you to the vaccine with very, very cheap access to History at TV. In the meantime, before you go and do that, this is Professor Mary Beard. Enjoy. Mary Beard, thank you so much for talking to me. It's a real pleasure. Well, thanks. Uh, now, why on earth does the ancient world continue to matter to us today? Um, well, that's the 64,000. That's a big question, but come on, let's get right. straight yeah, okay. into
0: it. No, and if you look at the media, the, the ordinary print online media, you'd think it mattered to us because there were lessons that we could learn in ancient Rome. Yes.
2: You know, that we could think, um,
0: okay, Republic
2: turns into empire, it's all happening,
0: President Trump, exactly, Caligula, you know, and uh, somehow. The job of the historian is to kind of match up uh, ancient Rome and its lessons with modern politics and a a sense of prognostication. Now, I I think that's charming, sweet and fun, and I do it all the time. But I think more to the point is that what the ancient world does is that it helps us think harder about us. We don't learn lessons from it. You know, it, you know people used to say, that it was deeply embarrassing, um, look, you know, had we known what a rough time the Romans had no, not, in yeah. Iraq, we okay. would never have gone there. And I thought, well, there's millions of other reasons not to go to Iraq. We don't need to know about Trajan's problems. You know, you know th- this, is, this is kind of, you know, passing the buck, really. But I think what Romans do is that they, they help us see some of our problems from the outside. They help us look at things in a different way. They help us think about actually the basic kind of ground rules of modern Western liberal, I suppose, liberal culture. Um, you know, They say, right, OK, what does citizenship mean? Now, Romans had a very different view of citizenship from us. We don't need to follow it, But it makes us say to ourselves, "Look, there's another way of looking at things." I and mean, I always remember, because I was sort of, you know, I was brought up with this, you, know, on the, the Norman Tedbit cricket test. You know, so they're those kind of damn immigrants. And what you need to do is you need to go to the cricket match and you need to see whether they're supporting India or England. And I think the real point is the Romans have a completely different version of that. They knew that you could be a citizen of two places. You could be a citizen of Arpinum in Italy, of Aphrodisias in what we would call Turkey, and a citizen of Rome. And that there wasn't a conflict. Now, we might argue with them about the conflict, but actually, they do kind of turn the question back on us and just say, why are we so certain about how we do what we do?
2: So, history is about calling out bullshit. It's about questioning certainty.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know about bullshit. I think people use bullshit in a terrible way, actually. But it means, usually, what I don't agree with. <laughs> uh, but I think that history is about... It's about challenging certainty. It's about h- helping you to see yourself in a different guise, to see yourself from the outside. So history is about the past, but it's also about imagining how you would look from the future. So, you know, one of the things it does is it it teaches us to see, in my case, what seems so odd about the Romans. But it also helps you see what will seem so odd about us in 100 years, 200 years. what What will students, when they're doing the history of Britain in the 21st century, what will they be writing about?
2: I can take a few guesses. (laughs) Um, okay, in that case, but why Rome, then? I mean, would this be true, I suppose it would be, if you were studying the Angevin Empire? In, In some ways, it's true of anything. In some ways, getting outside your
0: box and becoming a kind of anthropologist of other cultures and yourself, every which one works. I think why Rome and Greece, but particularly Rome, matters so much is that Rome is not only another culture which it is weird strange horrible don't want to go there but it's also a culture through which our forebears from you know, 19th 18th 17th century they have learnt to think we learnt to think about politics about right and wrong about The problems of being a human being, about what it was to be good, about what it was to be, you know, proper, you know, in the forum or in bed, whatever. We learned that from Rome. Um, Of course, we adjusted it. We renegotiated it. But so Rome is a kind of a brilliant paradigm for us because it's both utterly different and it makes us kind of think about real difference. And yet it's a culture which has somehow said, this is how you learn about what liberty is. This is how you learn about what the rights of the citizen is. So we are both an interlocutor with Rome. We're both happily much better than ancient Rome. And we're also the descendants of ancient Rome.
2: That's brilliant. But what strikes me about your programmes that you do so well is you call Rome a weird culture and yet in your programs you're so famous for pointing out domestic object practices ways of living that makes those intervening centuries disappear and stress our common humanity
0: yeah um, i think it's great fun
2: you know i think it's
0: and really important but I mean, if rome was just weird why would we be interested
2: you know you know
0: if we happen to know that there were men on mars um and they did things differently well you know Fine, I'd be mildly interested, but so what? But what's interesting about Rome is that they do things differently and are simultaneously, completely familiar. And yet, in that familiarity, they do things differently. I, mean, I think one of the things we do on the teleprograms, you know, and it maybe it's a cheap trick, but, you know, we you know, wherever we go, we go to the local Roman lavatories. Obviously. Yeah, you know, of course you do. Uh-huh. Um... And you know, I think people do think cheap trick. You know, it's easy to say, Oh, this is where Romans, you know, sat and chat or whatever. But there's no better place for saying, So, where does the difference between us and them become clear? There's no better place for getting particularly kids to say, Okay, I can begin to kind of engage in this history. Um, You know, how did they? sit here, you know, do you think they kind of wipe their bottoms? Did they stand up? Did they sit down? And you start to see in those rather kind of often rather over-posh and probably very restored Roman lavatories, as far apart as Timgad in Algeria and Ostia in Italy, you start to see a little problem about how you um, reconstruct Roman life. How you reconstruct what the rules were? You know? we don't know whether these lavatories you were know, all lined up in a room. Was it was it unisex? Or was it blokes only? Um, we don't know about the standing up, sitting down. We don't know about what the kind of, you know, I, you know. I don't know what the currently what, what the conventions are in a male urinal you, you don't people, want to know you don't people want to know. tell me that you don't talk to the person you next don't. to you but I always imagine that you do <laughs> be much nicer if you did um, but when you come down to basics you know you don't need to know a whole lot of technical detail about the past you can actually make it sing for you by thinking what was it like for someone to be there And how could I reconstruct that
2: experience? Where do you find the past is most real to you? When you're sitting in this beautiful room looking at your copy of Tacitus or when you're sitting amongst (laughs) an archaeological ruin in Portus on the coast of Italy?
0: Well, they're both real, aren't they? I mean, I think that the past speaks to you. and You have to keep it in a way in its place, right? I think one of the jobs of the historians is to keep the past in its place. Um, But it speaks to you in a very different way. And and I think that, you know, there are some bits of ancient literature I've read that have always made me um, rethink who I was and rethink my politics. And and I think the the obvious example is, you know, Tacitus. He's ventriloquizing Mm. uh, a defeated... Person in South Scotland, um, looking at what the impact of Roman rule is and saying they make a desert and they call it peace. There has never, ever been a more pithy summation of what military conquest is. And particularly in the 20th century of
2: industrial warfare, it became truer than ever. It is.
0: But, you know, Tastis will be, you know, Tastis would be, it would be, you know, smiling in his grave because uh, he showed us just what warfare and peacemaking, you know, what the, the, what the underbelly was. And I, I remember I first read that when I was uh, at school and I was doing Latin you know, school, Greek at school. I was a you know, I was a bit of a kind of bolshy little teenager.
2: Don't believe that.
0: No. True. <laughs> and I remember suddenly thinking, these Romans are speaking to me. You know, making a desert and calling it peace. You know, that's going to go on my tombstone, I think. And so and so I think, you know, there are bits of Roman literature which are so not just moving, but they're so to the point they're so politically acute that you can't ignore them. But also, I think the the fun that I have is sort of putting that together with the day-to-day, the ordinary, you know, because most of the people we read about in Roman literature are so damn, you you know, upper class, right? And if you say, okay, let's think about what ordinary life is like. What's great about going around Roman sites, whether it's in housesteads on Hadrian's Wall or Timgad in Algeria, is you start to see the real life of whether it's the Roman squaddy or the Roman civilian. And you start to kind of raise the other issues about how it was to exist in that world that we don't
1: think about.
2: Well, it's so funny you say it, because I've always been fascinated, as a total amateur in Roman history, why you read Suetonius and the court historians, and they are describing a kind of litany of insanity and, and misrule and hedonism and t- all the rest of it. And yet, of course, there's this fact, which is, despite civil wars and occasional major foreign incursions, the empire survives, longevity is, everyone's interested in longevity. So when you're looking at the difference between the source and then when you go on the ground, what has that told you about about the relationship between the imperial centre and these, the real life of these Romans on around the periphery?
0: Well, that's a really good question. Um, right,
2: my work is done.
0: It's a really good, good question. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Uh, that, and that's the question, because, you know, how, one of the big issues about thinking about the Roman Empire is how did the guy in the middle, or the guy in the middle with his advisors, how did they actually control anything, well you know, they could send a letter to what is now Turkey and it would take a couple of months to get there, by which time presumably any crisis was over and so you you start to think that this is a, you know, this what is it like to live in a world of not rapid communications but also of autocracy and there are clearly big things that happen. You know, Emperor Hadrian travels the empire. You know, he goes around, he meets people. He rather prefers the east to the west and the north, but he goes around uh, and he makes his mark and he gives a vision of what it is to be a Roman emperor visiting a community. Mostly... It can't be like that. Mostly, it was guys learning how to use the new lavatories that had been just set up in their local town. Really new, because you know they're sort of running water, um, and their relationship with Roman power is, a, a, you know, at the very least, it's mediated by the big guys in the local community, the lower officials in the Roman administration. You know, and Rome, and Rome works cause it, in works because it... In a sense, because it leaves people alone, I suppose.
2: So the local elites... It's the accommodation with the local elites is fundamental understanding the empire.
0: Yeah, if you're going
2: to do the big structural analysis
0: of why the Roman Empire works, you know, given it has, you know... It, it has very few officials on the ground, very few troops, really, compared with the size of the, the local population. I and mean, it makes the British Empire look overstaffed, mm-hmm. right? um, then the only way you can see that it works is by collaboration. So it collaborates with the local elites. The local elites do its dirty work. The peasant... Just knows he's paying tax to someone, um, but it doesn't much matter whether it's the Romans or the last, um, the last guy who is asking for tax, and the Roman elite, the, the, the local elites, are, in a sense, drawn in by the excitement of being part of the imperial project. Now we don't know how that. How that works on the ground, I mean Tustus is very cynical about it. No. He, he looks at Britain and says, "Ha ha ha you know, so they all like the idea of baths and togas ho 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 are uh, just another facet of their
2: uh, of their enslavement. but there were uh, examples of elite Syrians, Brits rising quite high in imperial hierarchies, enjoying patronage. I mean so that might, it, it did work on one level, didn't uh, it. Uh, uh, Despite Taster's being rude about
0: it. Yeah, yeah, Taster saw the the soft underbelly of it. Um, I mean, I think that the only way it works is that they incorporate the outsider. And so (laughs) we have a model of empire which is very top-down. Now, in some ways, structurally, I guess, every empire is top-down. But Romans made, whether this was consciously or not, they made the upper echelons of the oppressed feel that they could get to be on the top. And so you see, you get Roman emperors in the 2nd and 3rd centuries um, AD uh, who were actually... Who are born elsewhere? You know, they're not. They don't. They're not people who think of themselves as Roman in terms of coming from Italy. So it's an incorporative empire. Now, in some ways, I think that's probably um, as nasty. You know, maybe it's as nasty an empire as any
2: empire, but it's still a different version from ours. What about the dysfunction in the imperial centre? Does that have less an impact because you've got these quite stable elites around the periphery? Or is the imperial centre less dysfunctional than we've all come to believe? Uh,
0: I, you know, I don't know how we know how dysfunctional the imperial centre was. You know, um, uh, you know, if you if you were to read about the centre of British politics, you know, in the second half of 2017, mm-hmm. you would think that it was entirely dysfunctional. And we know that if we were to look at this with a longer viewpoint. We would partly think, yes, it was, Um, but we'd also think that probably Britain has managed quite well for hundreds of years with a dysfunctional centre. We also think that um, the kind of crises that for us mean dysfunction, you know, probably conceal the fact that there is a basically, a perfectly decent system, kind of. Trundling on
2: humming away beneath it's humming the bonnet.
0: away you know and and I think there is we can't see that in Rome you know you can't you know you can go look at the imperial what you know about the imperial bureaucracy you know and it's hard to say aha that's the civil service but somewhere under there there is an imperial bureaucracy humming along.
2: You're listening to History Hit with Mary Beard. All coming up after this.
0: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period, like how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors, twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful. Wi Fi connected digital picture frames The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Talking about an incorporative empire, you've got in a lot of trouble recently, Mary, <laughs> uh, for talking about multiculturalism and, and parallels with Rome, the Roman world. I mean, is this an empire in which people had equal access? Would, would Rome have felt like New York today with a different colour? I mean, what, it's a thorny issue. Look you know rome
0: would not have felt quite like you know I don't, i'm not sure i should talk about what new york today feels like because i think it probably feels quite quite exclusionary to some people yeah. in new york today you know you know who have yeah. no rights to work so i think we you know there, there's a problem about there's always a problem about this kind of you know the dream of the open society but i think what's important about rome is it it is desire and its commitment to uh, incorporate those that it conquers. Now, that doesn't mean that we think that conquest was nice. But, but Rome's um, distinction is its follow it through. And it, it follows that through both in myth and in reality. So, you know, if you're a Roman, you say, where do we come from? Where are we Romans come from? Well, actually, we Romans, by the way, we're refugees. You know, We came from Troy. You know, there was Aeneas, he was a refugee from war-torn Troy, and he founded a race, he didn't actually found Rome, but he founded the Roman race here in Italy. So their origin myth is one of... of the incorporation of outsiders. Uh, that's the same. Same is almost true with Romulus, who actually founded the city. You know, he was sort of of the Roman race. But what does he do? He, you know, he kills his brother. He puts up a notice because he's got he's got a new city and he hasn't got any citizens. He says, "Refugees, welcome." Right. Now, that is an extraordinary myth of origin, in terms of. How the ancient world sees this, and how we see it, actually. And it's absolutely hardwired into the way Romans think about themselves. But you see that, because they invented that myth, it wasn't, wasn't true. Um, you see that in terms of many of the things that the other people in the ancient world thought was odd about them. So, for example, um, when a Roman citizen... Free a slave, as they did much more often, it seems, than other slave owning societies in the ancient world. Um, that slave who is freed becomes a Roman citizen. So there is a kind of uh, uh, absolute kind of feedback loop from the foreign, because originally most slaves are foreign, from the foreign. Into the idea of Roman citizenship. Now we have a very, very ethnocentric view of citizenship, and I don't think that you know, it's not. You know, it would be mad to say we can just look at the Romans and do it their way. We're different, but it is important, I think, to say: look, there is a community which, it, you know, which in the past hugely successful empire. Whatever you mean by successful. Who actually worked on different principles from us? Who doesn't say, "I want you away from here, all you outsiders." It says, "We're going to take you in."
2: I also want to talk about women because you've been doing a lot of work recently about uh, women. I'm really struck by every time I enter. I'm a generalist. Every time I discover a new period and I talk to new historian specialists, and I, I read wonderful new books. They go, this period is very unusual, in that there's some very powerful women behind the scenes putting in the streets. And it seems to me that that just happens time and time again. So have women actually been completely excluded from governance, and with a few exceptions, or has traditional tellings of history deliberately ignored or been unable to recognise the role that women have played in, in wielding real power?
0: Um, it's sort of both of those, I guess. Um, and every... every um historian of every different culture always claims a particularly interesting role for their own women. Exactly. You know, but you know, actually, get real. I suppose I say, um, uh, and you know, I I don't want to be told that that uh, women in my period, um, my period uh, you know, wielded power behind the scenes. You know, you know, that's what they always say, um, and I'm therefore I'm much more interested in uh, the women of, no doubt, talent, intelligence, flair, whatever, of how they were put down. And I think there are many, many ways of putting women down throughout history. And I think that also um, there are ways, and those are the ways, in which we still learn to put women down. I mean, I don't look back to the ancient world for role models Of how women can be successful, you know. I think, you know, I'd be mad, you know. Uh, You know, gobby women got shut up in the period that I'm interested. But I'm looking at the ways in which that has is was part of ancient culture, and also in the ways that we have, in some senses, inherited. Largely indirectly, but partly directly, our view of women's exclusion from the
2: public sphere. From them, why has women's exclusion been so persistent? <laughs> big question, big question. Jan,
0: if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> I'd be really, really famous, popular, even made, more famous. Right, okay. But what I can tell you, I can't answer that question, but I can say there are ways in which. Our own exclusion of women from the public sphere both pick up on and match and reprocess the exclusion of women from the public sphere in Western culture that has gone for 2,000 years. And uh, and one of the things that very, very much struck me recently was looking at the the uh, Clinton-Trump election campaign. And there were Trump souvenirs which portrayed actually a replay of the myth of the hero Perseus cutting off the head of the snaky-locked Gorgon Medusa and so, in a sense, kind of proving his manly worth. What they did was that they picked up um, Cellini's sculpture of Perseus Medusa, still on display in Florence, in the, you know, Piazza della Signoria. Uh, And what they did was they put Trump's face onto Perseus, the heroic murderer, as we say, and the bleeding, nasty, gunge-oozing head of Medusa, had Hillary Clinton's face. And uh, that, I thought, you know, just said "Look, in the end the clash, the gender clash between um, men and women violently played out in the ancient world is still a gender clash that we replay. What? You know, is, the, you know, and Worse than that, I think, that this was something... You could buy this image on on tote bags, on computer folders, on coffee cups, on T-shirts. The idea that somehow still we were buying into the decapitation of a powerful woman with her snaky locks, and the same goes for Theresa May. It goes for Angela Merkel. It goes for any other woman, you know, in power. They're always represented as that awful, um, disruptive, dangerous, turn you to a stone woman. That's Medusa. We're still doing it. Now, I thought it was very interesting because, you know, just after Trump had come to power. Um, there was a bit of a, you know, minor storm in a teacup. You know, when a comedian, I thought in rather bad taste actually, holds up on television, you know, uh, a head of a decapitated Trump. And I thought, you know, not that. You know, I don't want to do that. It's not nice. She loses her job. The comedian loses her job. The previous eighteen months, we'd seen. Images of a decapitated Hillary Clinton as kind of souvenirs. Now, if you want to say where does the ancient world lie
2: in our sensibilities, it lies
0: right there.
2: Actually, can you explain why the Romans f- created and built that trope? So, what? We, you, because actually, the Romans faced, and there's lots of interesting women in the Roman period from, from.
0: There's always lots of interesting women.
2: But, but, so, but, yeah, but, but why did they, and why were they uniquely stigmatised and turned into. Right. Some of Rome's most famous enemies were, yeah. were these women.
0: Roman patriarchal culture, like every patriarchal culture, uh, both fights and invents the danger of women. I, how do you justify patriarchy? Because I, I, you know, I think that you know, many individuals within patriarchy are. Extremely anxious about it's about what it's standing for. You invent the justification of patriarchy by inventing the danger of women. Women have to be dangerous. You have to, you have to show everybody that if you, you know, if you, if you turn your back, the women will take over and wreck things. They'll make a mess of it. Okay. So, Greek literature, particularly, and taken taken over in many respects by the Romans. You know, Greek literature is full of women who are about to kill you, you know, are about to go mad. You know, there's, you know, the Amazons, you know, the mythical race of warrior women on the margins who, you know, it is the job of every good Greek boy to, to stop, you know, I kill. Um, You have glimpses and all kinds of Greek tragic, um, uh, drama of what is going to happen if women get in control, you know. So, Clytemnestra is left alone when Agamemnon goes off to the Trojan War. Um, you know, he happens to actually sacrifice their daughter in the run up to this. What bad news! Um, and takes
2: up all these slave girls, uh,
0: uh, uh, but you know, he comes back and what you know, what has Clytemnestra done? She has taken over the state and then she kills him. So there is no way of being a powerful woman in antiquity in any public sense who is not somehow undermined by the threat of uh, death or, in a sense, the collapse of civilised values as we know it. And, uh, you know, there are marvellous stories even about you know, poor women who just get up to, to speak in the Roman forum because they want to say something. And, and uh, their words will be reported as she barked and yapped. You know, that somehow women don't talk in male language. They don't get listened to. Um, but they're always dangerous dogs.
2: Women are dangerous dogs. What's interesting about you, Mary Beard, is that you say that history needs to be kept distinct. You say it should be; it's not for our time, and you say there are no lessons. And yet, you spend a lot of time talking about the present when we're talking about
0: history. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Dan. And I think that for me, it, what I dislike about the use of Roman history is um, the kind of the matching-up scenario, you know? You know, oh, you know, we shouldn't do this because the Romans got it wrong That's you know, That's stupid. But actually, you know, well, I think one of the reasons that it's still worth studying the ancient world is because, you know, we're still talking to it. We're still learning from it. We're still actually kind of, you know, negotiating our position in relation to antiquity. And so, you... You know, you can kind of, you can say that you're not interested in the ancient world, but nobody living in this country can escape the ancient world. You can't get rid of it. You know, you know, you can't get rid of it because it's still your bloody teacups. If you're in the United States, you know, it's still defining how we think about women. I you, know, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I was, you know, both pleased and sad. Uh, to share with people quite recently was um you know you go to the odyssey probably the second work of ancient literature the second work of western literature ever written you know you're in book one of the odyssey it's the story of you know odysseus being in the trojan war he's got to get back to penelope and he's got a hell of a lot of difficulties getting back to his lovely wife um and you know, how is this going to happen? And well, the first book zooms down into Odysseus's palace. He's still trying to get back home. Uh, and there's Penelope and she's got loads and loads of guys who want to marry her. It's a real pain. Um, and at one point, and I think it's an absolutely formative moment in Western culture, um, soon into the first book of the Odyssey, um her uh, her young son, a rather wet-behind-the-ears teenager, is there. Um, but then comes down. She's been doing women's stuff upstairs, and she comes down. There's all these kind of guys who want to marry her, and there's a bard. And he is sort of strumming on his lyre, and he's saying... Uh, uh, and he's kind of telling, singing a song about how awful it is for the Trojan, um, uh, the, the the Greek heroes to get back from the Trojan War, come back, um, back home. And It's terribly depressing. So, Penelope says, excuse me, I would really rather you sang a rather more cheerful number, actually. You know? Perfectly reasonable request. Telemachus, this wet-behind-the-ears teenager says, shut up. Uh, speech, public speech, is for men. Get back upstairs, Mum. Now, if you wanted a kind of uh, a symbolic start of Western culture's um, uh, erasure of the voice of women, you you, you don't need to look further than you know that one of the very first works of Western literature in which teenager, slightly not yet grown up, says to savvy middle aged woman. Stop talking. Speech is man's business. It's my business. Upstairs to your loom. And I think, to some extent, um, you know, I've been very lucky. You know? it, would be, it would be wrong of me to say that I have been deprived of voice.
2: You have not be. been stuck to your loom.
0: I have not been stuck to my loom, and I've been very lucky. But I think that that basic idea that you don't know, hear what women say is still something that... um that sticks you know and when people you know like on things like um, you know how many how many people of color there were in roman britain you right to me you stupid you know then you know, put any put any uh, kind of noun in there that you like you know you just you know don't you know you're just silly you don't understand this you know they're doing the Telemachus number they're saying shut up woman get back to what you understand
2: Always struck by Twitter when you get into your periodic fights <laughs> with the rest of the world, uh, and the people will tell men that they disagree with them, and they'll be very rude about the opinions. So, you know, but then with you, they make it immediately about you as a person. Yes, they do.
0: Yes, they do. And I think it's I think there's a very interesting sense here that that um, men are allowed to have wrong views. You know, in the public sphere, men are allowed to have wrong. Just to say things that they regret, that are wrong, uh, and they're you know, they're, and they're told that what they said there was wrong. Women are told that a they're not allowed a voice. So, you know, I'm going to cut your head off and rape it. You know, so don't speak again, darling. Or they are stupid. You know? not that we happen to disagree. They are stupid, and I think that that's, you know, that came out, I think, very very clearly around the election. Campaign in uh, the the different treatment of Diane Abbott and Boris Johnson, who both got it wrong, terribly wrong in radio interviews. You know, uh, Abbott, you know, didn't couldn't even begin to compute the cost of the new policing policy, and Johnson didn't seem to know a thing about the party's uh, um, you know key aims in the post-manifesto world. You know, Abbott is treated as if somehow you know, she's just not. Up to it. And Boris is just wrapped over the knuckles and told to, you know. Oh, come on, Boris, get a grip! Now, you know, nobody tells me to get a grip. It's tell me I am stupid.
2: Are you going to leave this world? I mean, if you got, you got—it's a bit depressing because you've got two thousand eight hundred years since the Odyssey of culture to contend with. Uh, are you confident you're going to leave? the next generation in a better place than where you found yeah, it? absolutely.
0: I mean, um, look, uh, when I, and this is thinking very, in, in very provocative terms, but you know, when I came to the University of Cambridge as an undergraduate, there were about 12% women um, were undergraduates. And that's now almost 50%. You know, that's 50 years. And I think, you know, we, you know I think it's really important that women go on fighting all this stuff and saying, you know, come on, you know, there's more to be done here. But also, they do need to take a bit of time off to say, we've done, you know, a huge, a huge amount. My mum was born before women had a vote in parliamentary elections. You know, that's one generation. So, you know, I think at the same time as one goes on and on battling, and also ought to kind of raise a glass, as I'm about to do, <laughs> uh, to you know the successes that we've had. You know, there has been in my lifetime a revolution and you know I'm a beneficiary of it.
2: Can you pass me a glass? Oh, it's my fine. Well, I've been a beneficiary of it too. Thank you we're so much, happy. Mary. You
0: know, we're all a beneficiary when when the talents of women are exploited, we all benefit. <laughs>